Welcome again to South Sub Church. We are so glad that you have joined us online. Today is an exciting day in the life of our congregation. Uh, even though we've been in person since May, we are officially relaunching uh, our congregation. We have some exciting things, new ministries, uh, encouraging folks to uh, look at some of the activities and events, a ministry tailgate, football season starting today too, and uh, so we're having our own ministry tailgate. Um, we have a new website, new logo. Uh, I pray that uh, you'll check us out at southsub.church. Um, not during the message, though. And uh, exciting things are happening as God continues to move in the midst of this congregation for His glory and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We're getting ready to go into a new series called Stuck in the Suburbs. Our last series was on the gospel. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to do that. You could uh, pick that up at... Uh, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash South Suburban Christian Church. Um, you can um, uh, also listen to this again, either on uh, YouTube or at SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcast. You can go to our website as well at southsub.church and uh, pick those up. Uh, the, the new series we're in, Stuck in the Suburbs, we're going to be looking at the mission field. We've looked at the gospel, now we're going to look at the mission field. And our mission field, quite frankly, is the suburbs, the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. And uh, there's some unique things about doing ministry in the suburbs. Uh, sometimes it's hard to be reflective. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but we want to see what Scripture says about the mission fields to which we are called and, uh, and, and, and the context that we find ourselves in. Um, if you're listening to us and you live in a suburb, I pray that you'll think about this in your own context. Uh, and I think the, the, the Word of God is just as applicable for those of us who live in small towns, rural areas, or even big cities. If you have your Bible, uh, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessing and his understanding to it. Amen. You know, part of the problem is that no one agrees on the basic definition. That's a part of the human dilemma, I think. Probably few of us are able to really observe anything without comparing it to something else. It's just part of the way that we human beings organize information in our mind. You know, foods are sweet, or they're salty, or they're sour, uh, or that newest addition, they're savory. Certain beverages are described as nutty, or fruit, fruity, or chocolatey. Years ago, I remember someone saying that we don't really communicate with words as human beings. Rather, words for us are symbols of shared experiences on which we agree. Well, let me give you a quick example. When I say orange, that very strange combination of vowels and consonants 
communicates an image, a symbol to you. That is, it causes you to recall a a previous experience of when you held that specific fruit in your hand, smelled it, tasted it, you liked it, you disliked it, you couldn't stand the smell, you loved the smell, you hated the sticky aftermath on your hands, or you licked your fingers clean. That experience was unique to you, and yet at the same time, it's universal to all of us, or, well, all of us who have eaten or seen an orange. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be discussing our mission field as South Sub Church, where God has placed us to do His work. We call this mission field that we find ourselves in the suburbs. And here we go. No one really agrees on what that word suburbs actually means. Demographers, that that is folks who are smarter than me and study the sociological and anthropological constructs and settings of how we live as human beings, don't agree on what a suburb is. Is Inglewood a suburb? Or what about Littleton or Highlands Ranch? What happens when a suburb becomes a city in and of itself? What about Parker, Castle Rock, Monument, Colorado Springs? Will the day come when Pueblo will be a suburb of Denver? I know one thing, housing is significantly cheaper there, but the commute is kind of long. The Denver sprawl continues. And so most folks who study this kind of stuff generally group us human beings into four basic categories in which we live. The first is rural or farmland. You know, the farm and fields of of corn or soybean. The small town, you know, Main Street, uh, two or three churches, everybody knows who the barber is. Uh, Maybe a tasty freeze in a small town. Then, of course, there's urban centers, much like Denver. They're city propers with theaters and restaurants and culture and then there is suburban or the suburbs give or take denver is the 19th largest urban city in the nation it is the top three of the loneliest cities in the united states and in 2018 it was voted the least religious city in the united states However, in 2019, for some reason, that was cut in half, and now Denver is the fifth least uh, accepting of issues of faith or spirituality in the United States. No one can really figure out why that happened between 2018 and 2019, but I have a suggestion for you, and it's my first point today. Faith is a component to living in the suburbs. Folks who live in the suburbs are great people of faith. Now, stay with me. It's been said that the suburbs are the new American frontier. Like the original settlers who came to this part of the country, looking to start over, to redefine themselves, seek new opportunities, find their fortune, discover whether or not they could have a life with possibilities. Most people move either because they have to or because they think they can discover something new and different and potentially better. Many of you are pioneers 
or at least the sons and daughters of pioneers, who made the startling leap to go to some place that was unknown. For many of these suburbs, there is no past. There are no precedents. There's no settled culture of who they are. Nothing to which we might conform ourselves to. For many of us, we're sort of making this up as we go along, trying to find our place in this new place. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now think about the Apostle Paul for a second. Once he was a loved and respected Pharisee who had risen to the top of his socioeconomic and religious status. And he left everything to follow Jesus. I'd like to think that when my wife and our family came to the suburbs of Denver to be with you, we were following Jesus too. But I also came here to learn from you, to experience a new culture, which some have said is really no culture at all, not necessarily here, but of any suburb. Of course, there is a Colorado culture, a rugged, individualistic, polite, but not overly friendly culture of the West. And frankly, most major metropolitan suburbs are the same exact way. Just in the almost three years that I've been here, I have had the opportunity to talk to dozens and dozens of new residents who have come here looking for a new community, looking to make new relationships with people who are just like them. Well, sort of just like them. Colin Woodard is the author of one of my favorite books entitled The American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. Woodard suggests that there are 11 very different cultures in the United States and that there always has been. With increased transportation, the ability to mix and mingle, with increased communication, those 11 different nations, as he calls them, have come into conflict with each other and all have embarked on that great missionary quest to convert everyone else to their way of life. To name just a few, the Midlands, that's the Midwest, the Spanish Caribbean down near uh, the southern tip of Florida, Greater Appalachia, which spans from New York all the way to West Texas, the Deep South, Alabama, Yankeedom, we all know where that is, and of course, our nation here in Colorado, as Woodard calls it, the Far West. This conflict between these nations intensifies around major cities, specifically because of suburbs. As a matter of fact, in this congregation alone, we have every single nation that Woodard identifies represented in this congregation, each with their own culture, with their own religious expressions, political sensibilities, and expectations of others. We come here looking for people like us, only to discover that not everyone in our apartment complex or our neighborhood is like us. When I lived in a small town, when we would meet someone new, th there were always three questions that we would ask them. The first question is, is, where did you graduate from high school? 
The second question is, is who are your grandparents? And the third question was, do you live in town or out in the county? Here, we ask questions of new people we meet too. For example, we might say, hey, are you a native? That is, as you were born and raised here in Colorado. Well, most likely, more and more, the answer to that question is no. Which is always followed up by another question. Well, where did you come from? And then, why did you move here? Every single new person we meet, one of those questions, if not all of them, will come up in that conversation. Why do we do that? Well, we're looking for connections. We're looking for commonalities. When I say an orange, do you understand what I'm saying? So how do folks we meet answer those questions here in south suburban Denver? Where are you from? Why did you come here? We came here, some might say, because of a job opportunity. Others, a relationship. Some others, affordable housing. Which, of course, when they say that, we know that they're probably from California. Some say, I came here for a backyard. And you know that those folks have moved from the city. And others say, I came here because I didn't need so much backyard. And those folks, of course, are from the rural areas. Regardless of your answer, regardless of why you came here, there's a lot of faith going on. Because part of that reason that you came was that you knew life could be better. I know life can improve. And for some, it does. And for others, it doesn't. Some folks can't afford housing. Others can't make any friends. Or their job or, or retirement brings more changes to their life, just like it brought them to Denver. Well, now it's going to move them to other places. Dallas-Fort Worth, Boise, Idaho, Kansas City, maybe even Grand Junction, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Castle Rock. Really? Where are you? You know, my second point, the suburbs report a higher rate of quiet despair than any other construct in our nation. That's astounding. You know, it's hard to look at our own lives in context and be honest with ourselves. I mean, we're in the midst of it, so it's hard to be reflective and critical about our everyday experiences that seem very natural. Historians Rosalind Baxendahl and Elizabeth Ewan, in their book Picture Windows, How the Suburbs Happen, describe the suburbs as a place of quiet despair. The reason it's quiet, they say, is because no one wants to admit that their life isn't as dreamy as they expected it to be, that their expectations for moving here have been shattered, dashed even. Or they think that their despair that they feel is somehow their fault. I mean, we have everything here. Why on earth am I not happy? Like cities and small towns and even rural farming communities, they all have an ethos. There's the action and the lights in the theater of the city. There's the peach festivals and the high school football games of the small towns. There's the cornrows, the fodder shocks of those rural areas. Those places where towns might shift who the mayor is between three or four families, where the pastor sits 
on the front porch of the president of the Ladies' Aid Society and has tea and pumpkin pie. Those are all expectations of those cultures. And just like them, suburbs have an ethos too. And that ethos, ethos is rooted in our history as a suburb. Now this might just astonish you. In the 18th century, here in the United States of America, this fledgling nation, the suburbs of cities were originally, are you ready, the slums around major cities like New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore. The cities were places of culture where artisans and craftsmen and bankers and lawyers gathered to plan the future for this young nation. But the suburbs, are you picking up on the meaning of that word now? The less than herbs, the less than the city, were the hovels, the brothels, the crime-infested shanties where the laborers, the day servants, the immigrants, and the migrants lived. They were known for open sewers, disease, gangs, and crime. That was the ethos of the suburbs. It was a place of total despair. And according to the studies, today, suburbs are filled with every kind of store and restaurant. They're relatively safe today. They're clean. They have manicured lawns. But what no one can understand is, is why the sense and prevalence of despair in the suburbs is still so prolific as it has been for hundreds of years. No one can figure out why. Point three. Well, suburbs are also a place of great hope. Now, now back in the days of the brothel and bar suburbs, only the roughest, only the toughest, only those who were willing to step out in faith toward the city, or more commonly, head west to claim a future of their own, only they would have some semblance of their hope realized. And here's the kicker. We generally only hear about those folks who were successful, not all of the folks that far outnumber the successful ones who failed. Now today, the suburbs are a far cry from 200 years ago. Well, really less than maybe 100 years ago. It wasn't until after World War II that the suburbs began to rebrand themselves. Out with the old and with the new. <laughs> Forgetting what lies behind, Paul says. Striving for the future. Yep, I think Paul captures it perfectly. But like those suburbanites of the 18th century, today's suburbanites are characterized by folks who study folks like us as those who suffer, and they've even given it a name. Are you ready? We suffer from suburban ambivalence. Mm, terrible disease. Folks come here with hope. It seems that much of what we long for in life, whether community and family, security and love, happiness, meaning, purpose, is all somehow embodied promised in the suburban landscape you looking for friends well here in the suburbs there are millions of people you can be friends with are you searching for a place to call home 
subdivisions as far as the eye can see. Need work to do? Plenty of jobs here in suburbia or in the city that we surround. Do you like material stuff? Anything you can imagine can be purchased or bought at a mall or a big box store near you. It's all right here in the suburbs. And yet at the same time, many suburbanites still haven't found what they're looking for. Instead of an ideal of paradise or a haven of rest, suburban living is often hectic and frazzled. Instead of a place of community, suburbia is often anonymous and isolated. We come here looking for utopia, never knowing that that word literally means no place. So many of our visitors here, not only at the church, but folks that I have engaged in in our neighborhood during this pandemic, have shared with me stories that they feel spiritually impoverished here in the land of plenty. Can I truly experience God? They ask. Is it possible to live an authentic Christian life here? In 2003, the magazine Christianity Today ran a cover story entitled Suburban Spirituality. The article raised some interesting observations about the challenges of being a Christian in the suburbs. But what was even more interesting were the letters to the editor that followed that issue. One reader wrote, The Christian life is about divestiture, not acquisition. You can do this in the city or the wilderness, but in the affluent suburbs, it can be done only in the most enfeebled and rudimentary way. The final irony is that many young Christians move to the suburbs and take on suffocating commutes and mortgages for the benefit of their children. This amounts to placing children at the very epicenter of the world's value system, materialism, and then expecting to grow a Christian child. Another reader wrote, The fact is that the suburbs are Prozac for the soul. Can you really be intimate with the living God when your senses are dulled, your time is not your own, and the cost to stay in the game keeps mounting. I'm not so sure. <laughs> Pretty tough responses, huh? Well, this isn't my first suburb in my life. I mentioned earlier to you about the, re the uh, faith receptivity in Denver. Well, back in the early 2000s, I served a church in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. D.C. is significantly less spiritual than Denver. D.C. also has ranked worse than Denver in being a place that welcomes families and children. And ironically, in the Denver metropolitan area, the city of Denver is actually more likely to express, express a faith preference followed by the suburb of Highlands Ranch to our south and Inglewood and Centennial, where we find ourselves in the heart, are second from the bottom of those who are most likely to express a faith preference. And the worst in our area is Aurora. My apologies to those of you who are in Aurora. Aurora, I guess, is just less godly than the city of Denver. My point that I really and seriously want to share with you, God always has a people. 
The idea that the Christian life is easier to live in a particular environment is frankly a dangerous opinion. In any environment throughout the world, temptations, seductions of the evil one are always present. And one only needs to look at the history of Christianity. Christianity thrived in the metroplex of Jerusalem and Rome of the ancient world. Christianity thrived in the agrarian and rural, rural countrysides of medieval Europe. Christianity boomed in the suburbs of cities like London and Paris after the Reformation. And although the suburban experience of today may be something never seen before in human history, we're not really sure we've ever been in this place ever before. Frankly, it's just another mission field to which Christ has called us. Now, over the next seven, well, well now six weeks, we're going to really drill down on some of the challenges and some of the blessings of this mission field God has called us to. Remember the words of Paul. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We're going to talk about where we can find hope in Christ, not the deception of the world's definition of success. We're going to talk about how South Sub Church has an opportunity to create true and authentic community, real relationships, grounded in love of God and love of neighbor. And we're going to talk about how hard it is to refocus our lives away from the idols we worship every day and empty ourselves in this land of plenty so that God can fill us with truly good things. Are you ready? I am.